It was a mild day on April 23, 1973, when the police in Santa Cruz, California, received what they first believed to be a prank call. The call was from a man they knew well, and when he said he needed to confess to two murders, they were sure he was joking. But as the caller continued with his story, he began to detail chilling events and the heinous crimes that took the lives of not only two, but many more women across the Santa Cruz area. What is up, Iwu crew? Today, we are exploring the case of a truly depraved and sadistic serial killer. Now, let's get into it. Edmund Emil Kemper was the third of his name. He was born to Edmund Kemper II and Clarnell Strandberg in Burbank, California on December 18, 1948. And his early life under their roof would set the stage for the atrocities he would grow up to commit. Edmund loved his father deeply, but developed a troubled relationship with his mother. Clarnell was a difficult, overbearing woman. Indeed, Edmund Kemper II, who was a World War II veteran, would go on to compare his relationship with Clarnell as being something of a war zone, and even suggesting that a suicide mission during the war was preferable to living with her. For her part, Clarnell remained severe and overly critical of the men in her life. She judged her husband's job to be menial and refused to coddle young Edmund for fear that it would turn him gay. She berated and belittled her son and was often heard to remark that no woman would ever love him. In 1957, tired of being trapped in a loveless marriage, Edmund and Clarnell separated. While Edmund made his way to Los Angeles, Clarnell took her son and their two daughters and departed for Montana. Ed hadn't wanted to move with his mother, and it was here that their relationship would come to a head. Clarnell's growing alcoholism and constant rebuke of Ed put a significant strain on their relationship. And over time, Edmund began to develop dark fantasies. His actions were described by those around him as troubled, and these behaviors would only worsen with time. As a child, Ed took to playing dark and disturbing games. He would often convince his sisters to partake in a game he called Gas Chamber, or electric chair, where he would have his sisters blindfold him and lead him to a chair. There, he would mime being electrocuted or poisoned and would pretend to writhe in agony until his death. He also took pleasure in taking the heads and hands off of his sister's dolls. And the idea of gratification from such violent acts became ingrained in young Ed's mind. As time passed, Ed's behaviors quickly escalated from fantasy to reality. He became obsessed with his second grade teacher and would frequently stalk her, even following her around with a bayonet he had once received from his father. His fellow classmates would sometimes tease him for his attraction, and when one student asked why he didn't simply kiss her, Ed responded by saying, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. But this behavior, while alarming, would only be the beginning of the dangerous habits Ed would cultivate. At the age of 10, he was no longer content to imagine what the face of death looked like, nor satisfied with playing pretend. To quench his insatiable need for violence, 
he took the family cat and buried it alive. He had chosen the cat because he believed that one of his sisters favored it over him. Later, he dug up the animal and proceeded to decapitate it, then placed its head on a pike. He also kept some of the bones in his closet. Clarnell soon grew fearful of her son and his odd behaviors, and terrified that he might hurt his sisters, she forced Ed to spend his nights in the basement and separated him from the rest of his family. When he was only 13, Ed killed again. The family had since replaced their old pet, and in a similarly gruesome fashion, Ed took a knife and killed it. These were his first forays into a world he had only dreamed of, but he would soon set his sights on much larger, more daring prey. When Ed was 15, the tumultuous relationship he had with his mother became too much to bear. He ran away to California looking to live with his father. But the elder Edmund had remarried, and his new wife and son struggled to find common ground. It quickly became apparent to Edmund that his son's behaviors were beyond the realm of his help. Unsure of what else he could do, Edmund sent his son back to his mother's house, where he would remain only briefly, before once again being sent away. Hurt by the rejection he faced from his father, Ed was sent to live with his paternal grandparents on their 17-acre ranch in North York, California. By now, Ed had grown into a young man whose size rivaled even the largest of men. He stood six foot four and weighed in at about 250 pounds. What he had tried to escape in his mother Clarnell, he found redoubled in his grandmother Maud. She was equally as controlling and Ed grew to hate every moment he spent there at the ranch. The afternoon of August 27, 1964 should have been a day like so many others. Indeed, for Maud and her husband, Edmund I, it seemed no different than any other. Ed's grandfather took the family truck and departed for the store to run the weekly errands, and Maud, who wrote children's books for a living, sat down at the kitchen table like always, rereading and editing her work. Young Ed sat with her, but as was typical with their relationship, a fight between them ensued. Ed, agitated and angry, picked up his rifle. It was a Christmas gift from his grandfather for him to help maintain the farm. Ed told his grandmother he was going outside to shoot gophers, but as he opened the screen door of the kitchen, he turned around. His grandmother sat with her back to him, poring over her proofs, and in a moment of gruesome curiosity, Ed pointed his rifle at her head. He pulled the trigger, and Maud's body slumped forward over the table. Ed shot her twice more, the bullets hitting her in the back. He grabbed a towel and wrapped it around his grandmother's head, then dragged her body into the bedroom to hide what he had done. A few moments later, his grandfather returned from the store. As he began unloading groceries from the truck, Ed took his rifle and waited until his grandfather turned around. Then, he proceeded to shoot him dead. In a moment of clarity and realization at what he had done, Ed began to panic. Unsure of what else he could do, he called his mother. Clarnell told her son to call the police and confess. Ed followed his mother's advice, and after admitting what he had done to police, 
He calmly made his way to the front porch and sat, waiting for their arrival. In a chilling admission, when police asked him why he had shot his grandmother, he told them he wanted to see what it felt like. When asked why he shot his grandfather, he said he did it so that his grandfather wouldn't have to find out his wife had been murdered. Police later believed that he killed his grandparents as a way to avenge the rejection of his father. Ed was arrested and handed over to the California Youth Authority. In their care, he was subject to a variety of psychological tests which determined that, at just 15 years of age, he had an exceedingly high IQ at 136, but also suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. With this diagnosis in hand, Ed Kemper was sent to the Atascadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility for convicts with mental illnesses. While in Atascadero, Ed underwent therapy, and through his conversations with various psychologists, he learned what to say to them that would make them happy and what not to say. Ed treated his sessions like a classroom, and while the psychologists were learning about him, he was also learning about them. He was open and honest, even helpful, and eventually even became an assistant to the psychologists. This provided him access to diagnostic materials, and he studied them thoroughly. Finally, he had learned enough that he was able to convince the doctors at the hospital that he was indeed a recovered patient. He never revealed to them the dark fantasies he imagined, or the fact that he developed a hunger for the stories of conquest that were told to him by the convicts at Atascadero. In 1969, when Ed was only 21, the doctors at Atascadero State Hospital deemed he was recovered and signed for his release. Though their official recommendation was that Ed was not to be returned to the custody of his mother because of his psychological issues surrounding her, officials immediately released him back into Clarnell's care. Clarnell had since moved to Santa Cruz, and as an administrator to the University of California, she was able to pull some strings to get Ed a job. There, he also attended some community college classes, but neither vocation lasted long. Ed wanted more freedom, and so he worked a variety of jobs until he eventually secured a position with the Department of Transportation in 1971. Ed's fascination with guns and law was expanding, and eventually he applied to be a state trooper. His hopes of becoming an officer were quickly dashed though, as at six foot nine inches tall and 300 pounds, he was rejected from entering based on his size. Still, Ed wanted to remain part of the lifestyle, and so he frequented a bar across from the police station. There, he became good friends with some of the officers, and even garnered the nickname Big Ed. He was so friendly with them, in fact, one of the officers gave him a police-issued training school badge, while yet another let him borrow a gun. Later in 1971, Ed was hit by a car while riding his motorcycle. The accident left him with a badly damaged arm, and he found himself unable to work. Ed sued the driver of the vehicle and won a settlement of $15,000. He promptly went out and purchased a car. With his newfound freedom and copious amounts of cash, he was finally able to pursue his increasingly dark desires. Ed took to driving around the campus his mother worked at. 
he noticed an increasing number of young women hitchhiking to and from their destinations. And as Ed watched them, his interest and desire continued to grow. He placed handcuffs and a knife in his trunk and tucked a gun beneath his seat. Then, he began picking up hitchhikers. He used these first few riders as lessons, and with each new hitchhiker, he learned how to approach the women, how to speak to them, how to placate them and make them believe he meant them no harm. What may be surprising to hear is that Ed was very personable and charismatic. And when he tried, he could even be charming. He had no problem convincing people to trust and even like him. But with each day that passed, with another hitchhiker slipping through his clutches, Ed became more eager to fulfill his darkest wishes. Finally, the day came when he felt ready to take off the training wheels. On a quiet morning in early May, Ed found himself driving around the Berkeley area. There, he spotted two young women, Marianne Pesch and Anita Lucessa. They were looking for a ride, and as Ed approached them, they were only too eager to climb into the back seat of his car. They were Fresno State students hitchhiking back to the Stanford University campus. After driving for a time, Ed pulled off the highway and down a secluded dirt road not far from Alameda. His goal was to assault the girls, and privacy was paramount. He stopped the car and got out, immediately handcuffing Marianne to the back seat. Anita took off running, and with Marianne safely secured, Ed grabbed the knife from the trunk and followed Anita into the woods. Like the predator he was, Ed tracked her down. Though she ran for her life, Anita was no match for Ed Kemper's large frame. He grabbed her and stabbed her repeatedly before he strangled her to death. Covered in her blood, he returned to the car and opened the door closest to Marianne. He unlocked her handcuffs and tried to convince her that he needed her help. As he looked at her, he was reminded of a lesson he learned from his fellow convicts at Atascadero State Hospital. Never leave a witness behind. In a panic, he told Marianne that he had struck Anita and had broken her nose. And as Marianne made her way out of the car, Ed overpowered her. They struggled and he stabbed her. He pushed her into the trunk of his car where she bled out. He retrieved Anita's body and placed her alongside her dying friend in the trunk. Then, he drove back to his home where he took the two bodies inside. He proceeded to decapitate them, remove their hands, and assault the corpses. Afterwards, he took several Polaroids as a trophy. In this way, he could continue to relive the crime over and over again. The parents of the girls would file a missing persons report, but nothing would become clear to them or to authorities until August of 1972, when Marianne Pesh's head and other body parts were found scattered along the Loma Prieta mountain. Anita Luchessa's remains were never found. Ed Kemper had finally gotten a true taste of how it felt to bring his fantasies to life but the satisfaction didn't last long. He wanted more, and he would get it. It was a warm day on September 14th, 1972, 
and Aiko Ku had grown tired of waiting. She stood at the bus stop with growing irritation with how long the bus was taking to arrive. Finally, she decided she would rather hitchhike to dance class than wait outside any longer. Aiko was a naive and impressionable 15-year-old. So, when Edmund Kemper pulled up alongside her, she thought nothing of climbing into the front seat of his car. As they drove along the series of interconnected highways, Ed pulled a gun on Aiko. He shoved the weapon between her ribs, but insisted he didn't want to hurt her. In fact, he told her he wanted to take his own life and just wanted someone to talk to. Somehow, Ed convinced Aiko to submit to being bound and gagged. As he pulled off the road, he told her to pass him the tape in his glove box, which she complied. Then, he taped over her mouth and told her to get into the back of the car. He put the gun under his seat and got out of the car. A moment too late, Ed realized he had locked himself out of the vehicle. Somehow, he convinced Aiko to open the car door for him, and as soon as she did, Ed began to strangle her. Aiko fought with all her might, but Ed had no trouble overpowering her. As she was unconscious, Ed assaulted her before strangling her with her scarf. He placed her body in the trunk of his car and hot and sweaty from the fight, decided to go to a bar and have a few drinks. Later that night, he brought Aiko's body to his home and proceeded to dismember it. Ed took his depravity even farther as he froze parts, which he then fried later and consumed. He said it was simply part of an experiment and he ate with the same relish that a hunter would his kill. Ed then took her body parts and threw them into the mountains of Santa Cruz. On a drizzly evening on January 8, 1972, Cynthia Shaw was making her way down Mission Road near the university campus. Cynthia, or Cindy as she was known by her family, was an experienced hitchhiker. In fact, it was often her main mode of transportation. So it was no special occasion for her that night as she held a thumb out along the highway looking for a ride back to Cabrillo College. That same night, Ed Kemper was prowling the streets, eager to try out his newly purchased 22 Ruger. He had already picked up a few hikers but had released them for fear that too many people had seen the girls get into his car and would be able to recognize him if their bodies were discovered. Along Mission Road, he happened to spot Cindy. The ride was short. Within moments of entering his car, Ed had pulled off to a secluded area. He forced Cindy out of the car and in an instant ended her life with one shot to the back of the head. Then, like so many others, he stuffed her body into the trunk of his car and drove home. He hid her body in a closet, waiting for his mother to leave the house. When she finally left, he assaulted the corpse and dismembered her, keeping her head in his room. He drove up and down the coast, throwing parts of her body out along the way and returned home to bury her head in the yard. Ed buried Cindy's head beneath his mother's window, saying with his sick sense of humor that she always wanted people to look up to her. By this time, police were aware of dozens of hitchhikers and college students being reported as missing persons. 
Bodies were piling up all around them, but police had no suspects and nowhere to turn. Complicating things was the fact that two other serial murderers, John Lindley Frazier and Herbert Mullins, were all active in the same area. Campus security at the University of California warned students to avoid getting into cars that didn't have a campus sticker. This didn't bother Ed at all, as he had already been given one such sticker by his mother. It was this sticker that lulled Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu into a false sense of security on February 5th, 1973, when Ed pulled up on campus and offered them a ride. It was a rainy evening, and after Ed picked the two strangers up, they made their way towards the edge of campus. All of Santa Cruz was illuminated before them, and Ed asked if either would mind if he slowed to take in the sights. Without any objections, Ed slowed the car to a crawl while simultaneously pulling out the gun he had hidden beneath his leg. In a flash, he shot Rosalind in the back of the head, and within moments, he got off another three rounds into Alice Liu. Ed admitted later that he could still hear Alice dying in the back seat as he drove past campus security and rode away into the night. As with all his other victims, Ed Kemper partook of his usual gruesome rituals, but the effects no longer excited him the way they once did. Now, it was little more than a routine. Then, Ed's life as he knew it came to a tumultuous end on Good Friday, April of 1973. That day, Edmund and his mother got into another of their typically heated arguments. Clarnell left the house and went to a party, while Ed remained home, stewing on his anger. When Clarnell returned home, in Ed's words, soused, she promptly fell asleep. For a week, Ed had been thinking of killing her, and as she lay there before him, deep in slumber, Ed took a hammer and struck her repeatedly in the head. Then, he decapitated her. He placed the head on a shelf, and for hours he taunted her corpse, throwing darts at her head and mutilating her body. He cut out her larynx and stuffed it down the garbage disposal, which Ed would go on to say was appropriate given the way she had belittled and berated him throughout his life. He then hid the remaining pieces of her body from sight. It isn't clear why, but afterwards, Ed called his mother's friend, Sally Hallett, to come over. When she arrived, he immediately strangled her and shoved her in a closet. Then he cleaned himself up, climbed into his car, and drove to Pueblo, Colorado. Along the way, Ed listened intently to the news on the radio. He was desperate to hear any mention of his mother's murder. But when none was forthcoming, Ed pulled off the road and called the Santa Cruz Police Department. He confessed to her murder and the murder of her friend Sally. When police refused to take him seriously, as many of them knew him well, he began to detail his many other crimes. With a chilling impassivity, he recalled every gruesome act he committed, and police dispatched officers to his location. When they arrived, he was standing calmly by the payphone he had used to confess. In October 1973, 
Ed Kemper went to trial for eight counts of first-degree murder. While in court, he earned the nickname the co-ed killer, as most of his victims were college students. Strangely, many detectives found themselves commenting on Ed's amicable attitude and his open and easygoing nature. Despite his horrific crimes, Ed was frequently seen during his trial smiling and laughing with police officers, sometimes even sharing a cigarette. At one point, while he was being interviewed by psychiatrists, Ed was given truth serum, which is the name for a mixture of psychoactive drugs used to obtain information from prisoners unwilling to speak. The truth serum appeared to be unnecessary, as Ed was so open and honest regarding the details of his crimes that his attorney felt they had no choice but to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. This defense, however, did not hold up, and Ed was found guilty of all charges in November the same year. When the judge asked him what Ed felt his sentence should be, he replied that he should be tortured to death. Unfortunately for Ed, the state had just recently repealed capital punishment, and so he was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. After his conviction, Ed Kemper remained open about the crimes he committed. He took part in several interviews that seemed to delve deeply into his psyche. In this clip, Ed explains why he picked up young women to murder. My frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. In this video, Ed is stoic and controlled. He leans back, arms open, as if to welcome interrogation. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with the young lady. I need to be able to really communicate, and ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. He remains calm throughout the questioning and seems to look deep inside himself for the answers so many were desperate to obtain. Uh, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that, psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. After the conversation, the interviewer reportedly said that he actually liked Ed. It was Ed's openness that led Robert Ressler and John Douglas, both contributors to the newly formed Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI, to interview Ed Kemper on several occasions. The insights he provided contributed to what we now know today as a template of behavior for the modern serial killer. His honest and forthright discussions regarding his treatment of his victims, his reasoning behind his actions, 
and the dysfunctional relationship he forged with his mother helped investigators to establish a baseline for the criminal psychopath. Ed's crimes have been featured in popular television shows like Criminal Minds and most recently, the hit Netflix show, Mindhunter. Today, Ed Kemper is serving the remainder of his time at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. <laughs>